Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero, the Dew Sweeper. You're about to listen to an episode of The Tour Coach, which is going to give you an inside look at coaching golf at the very highest level from on the PGA Tour with my guys all the way to here at Mobile, Alabama in the Dew Sweeper Dome as we help folks of all skill levels, all walks of life, learn to achieve their golfing goals. This is kind of nice to be doing, and Brady and Luke, thanks for doing this with me, because it's been a little difficult with doing the Tour Coach podcast with no tour coaching to do. We've had, you know, we've talked a ton about what's been going on and, you know, what we've been all been working on. But uh, so anyways, this is fun. Two weeks, tours back. I was at the first two, Brady, you had asked about that. It was interesting. I mean, this is nothing to do with like the public and you know, what's good for golf or whatever. But like from a teaching perspective, it was way easier without fans. Like, mm. you know, getting in, getting out, like Colonial, I valeted my car right in front, you know, just walked through the gate. And there's obviously less distractions and the limited number of people. So if you're talking about a coaching and performance, I thought it was much more like teaching college golfers. Like, I mean, there wasn't near very many distractions. There were less equipment people walking up and down the range, trying to get people's time. There were no agents there inside the ropes. So you didn't have agents wanting to buy. I mean, like, so there was far fewer distractions. And I thought that like from a coaching and teaching perspective, that made the job actually obviously very different. You could tell them downtown with the buses, but it made that aspect of the job different, but easier for my point. Interesting. How do you think the players were reacting to that? Do you think that they, what was their vibe out of the... You know, I think that like the first part of the week part was okay because I think everybody kind of, I shouldn't say everybody, but I think one, the golf courses look totally different. Like Colonial in particular looked so different without all the grandstands. I've been fortunate enough. I've played Colonial a couple of times with some buddies and it looked just like it would look like if the four of us went to play golf, you know, no, I mean, you had some of the stuff and tees and all that, but I, I don't know. It was just different. It was cool because you could see the whole golf course and uh, you actually had to look for golf balls. There weren't people that were keeping them from bouncing out of bounds. So, but back to your question, I thought, I think that, but then I think on the weekend stuff, you know, I heard Ryan Palmer interviewed and I know some of the guys like there was no energy to feed off of coming down the stretch that you normally would get going. If you were, you know, if you, if you started out four under through six holes or something and had it going, I mean, you know, there is, there wasn't any energy when somebody changes a score on the scoreboard. I mean, just nobody, you know, it was just the players. So certainly less energy and less fun for the players on the week. But, uh, I mean, I think from a teaching and coaching perspective, the first part of the week was actually maybe better for the players. Interesting. Lucas had a great week this last week at, at Hilton Head. Did you hear that? Did he mention anything about that of, of how, you know, he, I think he, he got off to a really good start yesterday or something like that. Birdie just first two, and I mean, now he didn't really mention anything about that. I mean, he's played solid golf the first two weeks back. First week made four doubles and finished 26. So I thought that was if you make four doubles and finish 26, I think you played pretty good. Other than that, his ball striking stats were good. He's changed and gone back to left hand low putting versus using the arm lock, and uh, you know his putting stats were were good. I mean, have improved, and the reason that we went to that and that he went to that along with his putting coach Larry Bobka and myself was felt like that he was really good inside four or five feet last year, six feet, which was the reason he went to it. 
but speed control from 15 to 20 feet, which when you're, to me, when you're a great ball striker, you give yourselves a shitload of 15 and 20 footers. And, and I don't think percentage wise, he made enough of those. And, and I felt like from watching him play golf, Brady, I know you do a lot of that watching, you know, Brandon play golf. I think watching them play is important and his speed control wasn't very good. So that was the reason for going back to left hand low to give him a little more feel with the putter and a little bit better speed. I had a question based on, on that. Cause I know when we were at Frederica, when was that back in March, speed in March? You were on the golf course. Wasn't that like a week or two before the world shut down? 100%. And it feels like a, a, a decade ago right oh. now. But Luke is like 50 pounds lighter. I swear I'm looking at him in the screen. No, he's a, this is, this is the, Half he went human. back in time. We have the 15 year old Luke is on board here today. <laughs> I got it. I know. Um, yeah, you know, Tony, without, you know, without any golf to cover, I'm just in a constant state of just shaking. So, of course, I'm going to lose a little bit of weight. You know? I, mean, I just don't know what to do with myself. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I gained a weight. I mean, I'm living proof that just drinking vodka won't make you lose weight. <laughs> I thought it would work, but it didn't anyway. So, that is, I, I think a lot of our tour coach followers are going to be going to be disappointed to hear that that that's not an effective weight loss program. Yeah. <laughs> so that and wavy lays potato chips, it doesn't do it. So anyway, who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Tony, I was going to ask you about, because I know when we were down at Frederica with, and you and Lucas were on the golf course, everybody's quarantine or time off is different, right? You know, on mm-hmm. tour. So Brandon's in Scottsdale. He has games with, you know, like Chez Revy and, Streelman and all those guys all the time. Everybody in a different geographic location is doing things differently. But also, like, if you're a tinkerer, don't you think that the tinkers, this is bad for some of them? You know, they have way too much time on their hands to to try this and try that. Like, you know, Brandon's very cerebral. So a lot of times I'm getting questions from him and he's like, what about this? I'm like, just yeah. can you just stop, you know, for a while and go play? But it's. I think it's going to be an interesting case study when they come out of this on how people use that time, you know, whether it was a benefit for them or whether it was a negative on, on whether or not they put too much time in the technical and they weren't on the course or vice versa. Well, one of the things like I've, I've sent Luke and I've been talking and, and I we've sent him some pictures of several of my players, the befores and afters of what we did during the Corona break. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some of them are just, setup stuff right focusing on setup but so lucas is one of those guys though that like you know we said so he was come started coming up to frederica a good bit probably saw each other every two three weeks because we really wanted you know our goal was to be better when he came out of this so he was really made a commitment i think got rested up after playing that huge asian swing in the fall played more golf than he played in a long long time going through the tour championship british open basically you know so he played more golf and then, you know, got rested and was like, so he got committed to back in the gym with Colby, done a, you know, and his body's moving great again. And we worked every couple of weeks. But one of the conversations we had was like, okay, if we're going to do this, like we're not going to change every time you come up here and try something different. Let's be real committed to sticking with a couple things that we're working on. And I think we did a really nice job of that. And like, that's hard, Brady, you know, and Luke, even, watching you like you're always working on getting your swing better and stuff like that like it, having access to all that information and all the teachers like shit it's hard to not try stuff and get lost and so i think it, it works the same as when you like sometimes it's bad we're by, around our students all the time and right. so but i think you got to make it a point 
you know, of, of doing that. And, you know, one of my players, Robbie Shelton, like I only see him a few times a year, really, other than at tour events. And I don't even work with him that much. Like he kind of goes and does his own thing. And then two, three times a year, we work for two days, three days, getting back to what he does. So I think every player is different, but man, you gotta, you gotta be careful. It's funny too, because like, it seems like there, there have been uh, players who have approached this in like one of two ways. You've got like your Rory's who seem to, who've sort of said openly, that I didn't touch a golf club for the first yeah. six weeks. And the thing that surprised me about that was learning like who is programmed to like really gear up towards something, you know, like, and when they don't have something to point at, some players just like, you know, it's, it's not, you know, they maybe struggle a little bit for motivation or they're just like, it, it's like, it's like the way they format their game rather is towards building up to something. You know, this is my yeah. target. This is what I'm gaining. This is what I'm aiming at. This is my sort of step-by-step plan in order to get there. And when I don't have that end goal to aim at, it's interesting to see which players sort of just will say, well, then I'm going to rest up because I'm tired. That's always interesting to me. And it's also interesting because we've seen so much golf in like, or so many golf tournaments and rapid succession over the past few years. The, the concept of an off-season kind of went away for a while. It seems like you guys will be able to tell me better than anyone, but you know, it, it's not like the old days where the PGA championship would happen and then everyone would shut it down until Hawaii, you know, like this is people were constantly keeping it rolling. And the busiest time of the year was through the FedEx cup and the Ryder cup and things. And then you'd have a few weeks and then you'd get back at it. Whereas now, like you've seen on the one hand, you've got the Rory's not really doing, you know, not doing much until the tour dates announced and then they gear back up. Then on the other one, you said, okay, now I have some time to actually go away, iron out some kinks, like be in my little, my incubator for the next few weeks and then work on it. I just find it, I, I guess I never really realized that there are these different mentalities on tour between players about how they get themselves geared up. One interesting thing to me is if you look at like, say the top, 10 players or whatever like the only one that seemed like they did a ton of work and didn't take time off was was bryson right and he ate a volkswagen i mean (laughs) you know i mean but like to me like it seemed like the rory's the kepka's you know justin thomas dj you know i've seen some of those when i went down to bears with lucas like you see you know and and uh like I think a majority of those guys. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the fact that like, look, if you're in the top 10 in the world ranking, I mean, I don't know that how you come out this stretch with what they've done for status through the next year is that pressing for them. Whereas if you're a guy that, you know, is sitting outside the 125 and you're not a top 10 player in the world and already in all the majors, like there's probably more importance of what you did during the off season. You know, I mean, to me, like when you see how many of the top 10 players took off, certainly their their position and how important that ranking. And then when they froze the rankings and nobody could move, I mean, you know, it's got to play into some of their decision, I would think. Absolutely. And it's probably just like a lingering, the lingering doubt a player may have or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like Ricky Fowler went away and seemed like he was working hard. But yeah, like you were saying, yep. a bunch of other guys didn't. And it must just be, you know, for Rory, the thing that he wanted to address was the fact that he's not rested up probably. You know, whereas like Ricky Fowler, there were other things he, that he wanted to work on that were more pressing. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's like, a, it, it's such a unique time, but it provides like quite a unique insight into like the way these guys are thinking about 
you know, their own game, about their own preparation, about all this stuff that you don't, that we would never ordinarily be able to understand. But I think that like social media too, I mean, Brady and I have talked plenty about the good and the bad of social media, but like, I think that with the younger folks being on social media a bunch, we had more insight and look into what these folks were doing, you know? And so, I mean, we've never, I mean, like you said, we haven't had a real off season heck in the years that I've been going out there, which hasn't been forever, but like we haven't had a real off season. I mean, you get what from the end of RSM, which is like November end of November. I mean, you get what three, four weeks, five, I mean, till they play again, five weeks. And they, you know, they can't take all five weeks off and show up in Hawaii. They got to start getting ready. And so, uh, Anyway, so I think it's uh, – I like the offseason personally. I wish they'd go back to creating a real offseason because it was actually nice from a work perspective. And I had to have a pandemic to get some time off, but it was nice. It's funny too from my seat in the house, you know, the media seat where like all of a sudden you have an offseason and then when the tournaments come back, you have like – Rory McIlroy playing in the RBC Heritage for the first time in ages. And, you know, suddenly these fields are stacked. And it's, it's like an interesting inverted side effect, right, of having so much golf that you start just gradually, like, diluting the fields because guys need to take weeks off and they get tired and yada, yada. And now, like, you look at every, you know, at least with the first few tournaments back, you look at every field and they're just stacked. And you, it's, yeah. it's pretty exciting. On that yeah. note, I'd say... Just it, it's a challenge. My guy is outside the top 125, which in some ways with the way they're doing status, he's not under the same you know pressure he has had we had a reshuffle at the end of the year, obviously, where we had to go back to Q school. But these tournaments he would have been in. Mm-hmm. You know, now he's not in these tournaments. Mm-hmm. So like he's going to Utah for the Corn Ferry this week before right. he goes and gets into, finally gets into some PGA Tour events. And obviously, it's his thing. He's got to play well to get into those events. But each part of it is interesting. You have the good players, all the or the top ten players. They're all in the fields they never would have been in before. But then those guys that are one twenty five to one fifty that need those events, you know, they can't get in them. So then, where do they go? And it's everything's just thrown up in the air. And it's it's really interesting. I think it's going to be it'll be interesting to see kind of who who is really ready to go. That's on that other end of the spectrum. Like if you're not getting events, everybody had an X amount of time off. Well, the guys that are on the bottom, they just had another three weeks off, right? Yeah, they didn't go, they're not in that. They're not in RBC. So they're not in this week. So there's three more weeks off before they finally get back at it. So it's tough. You know, it's tough staying sharp when you're when you're away from competitive golf for three months. Yeah. Well, and if you're one of those people that, you know, where you watch the number of your guys getting in, and I mean, it's hard. I mean, right now, because there's no rhyme or reason. Like, like you said, there was always you knew your guys in the summer were going to get in all the events, right? Or because guys would start taking off because of the British, because the U.S. Open, they take the weeks off, and now you don't have that, right? And and so, yeah, there's a trickle down effect to every every yeah. level. You know, right. it's going to be interesting. Dr. Greg Carton, quote from him here, but always talks about, you know, how we need to be willing to get uncomfortable because we're never necessarily going to get comfortable. So don't always be chasing after that, right? And now more than ever, people are having to get uncomfortable with new schedules, new ways of practice, all these new things. So it, it is, you know, there's that whole other aspect as well of, you know, the mental game has changed for everyone too. Everyone's uncomfortable. 
you know, probably most folks are out of their ordinary. And so how do they, how do they cope with that on top of everything else that's going on as far as competing and playing all that stuff? I just think like I've had to learn to use other ways to coach that I wasn't very good at technology. I tried to challenge myself at the beginning of this to be a better teacher when I came out and be in a better place as a teacher and in a better place business wise. Like, cause you know, I, so I knew I had to learn how to do stuff with like online lessons and things that I traditionally suck at. Right. And, and not only do I suck at, but I didn't even enjoy doing. So I've challenged myself to get better at that. And I think I've done, I think it's helped, you know, I think I'm doing a better job when I get lessons from people, videos at, at analyzing them and, and spending time coming up with things, filming myself on my back porch with a club showing somebody stuff, you know? So I think the people that are really good at teaching and Luke, you've got a, got a hundred of them that you recognize. Like, I think that the best teachers will rise to the top in these, in these situations. Cause they're the best to me always are thinking outside the box, pushing themselves to get better. And, uh, I mean, I did a hour FaceTime lesson with Luke Guthrie the other day with Jackson also on the line. So there were three of us. I don't even know how we did this, but watching him hit balls for an hour and he went away and I mean, he thought it was one of the best sessions we had. Whereas like, I don't know that six months ago I would have ever tried it nor been worth a damn at doing. Yeah. It's interesting. I do want to, I guess, like ask the flip side of the question to you and Brady, because it reminds me, this whole period has reminded me of something that uh, Brandel Chambly thinks and says and has told has men- mentioned he was speaker at our top 100 teachers summit and um he might have brought up there i can't remember but anyway he just thinks that the modern golfer is so dependent on coach like it's just to to like a uh, to, to like a real degree that it inhibits their own talent is what he calls it i'm quoting Brown, so don't shoot the messenger here but i'm curious like if a you guys as coaches think that's true and B, if so, I guess, um, has this period in pushing them out, in pushing some of your students outside their comfort zone, have they started to think more about their own game in a way that maybe they would have just come to you straight for answers and now you're sort of having different kinds of conversations with them? I'll go first on that one, Tony. Please. That's a sweeping generalization. And most, most of the time, those are really horrible ways to describe a situation, you know? I mean, out of all the players I work with, there's that spectrum. You know, you have some that are constantly in communication with you, sending you swings, asking questions. And then you have other ones like, like Tony just talked about where you don't see somebody for, for three or four months. You know, they send you the occasional text message. I don't think anybody in this time is going to change who they are. You know, we've had to adjust a little bit to it, but I, I don't think that's true. You know, I think that I don't know that it's any different than it was 10 years ago. In fact, I would even say that with some of the technology with TrackMan and some other technology, I think people that were starting out and thinking this was the answer over time have pulled back away from that and realized that the answer is not maybe in the numbers on a machine and it's out there, you know, working on shot shape or getting on the course or whatever. So I think that's a, I don't, I don't like that, that kind of description of where the tour player is right now. I think that we're far less that way than we've used to be. It used to be. And I, and I think that, I'm sure there are teachers that create an environment where they want the student to feel like they need you. But I mean, you know, I think if you can coach the whole game and you do, you know, and you help the student understand what they're working on and why and how to monitor it themselves. Like, I mean, I think tons of great teachers 
are trying to do that and not make students to where they're solely dependent on us anymore. Well, is the ultimate goal now to do what, what Justin Rose just did and, you know, kind of go out on his own and just, you know, own his swing. I mean, is, that's kind of the, the flip side of that, right? Of where he's worked, he worked with Sean Foley for so long and now he's just kind of doing his own thing. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think there's no reason not to have somebody you trust. Right. You maybe you don't go back as much as you used to, or it's not as in depth a conversation because you guys have squared things away as time moves on. But I would consider myself a failure if I had a player that constantly had to come back to me and didn't know what they were doing. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I mean, it should be that as time moves on, I, I'll use Brandon as an analogy because we started working at 13. He's, he's almost 30 now. You know, we've been together a long, long time through all of junior golf and at Cal and all when he's getting his whole deal. A long, long time, right? And and as time moves on, when we first started, I told him, this is how you tie your shoes. You know, this is what you do with the practice round. You know, I mean, everything I did with him, you know, the towel goes this way on your bag. And now I work for him, you know, like I'm definitely the employee. And he's like, you need to be here at this time. Okay, yes, sir. You know, yeah. so it's like things have changed appropriately as time has moved on. You know, I've become less in charge of everything and more of somebody that gives him my opinion than he can choose to take it or not. That's a healthy description. A natural progression. That should be like that. I would hope so. You know, even with my own daughter who's playing college golf now, like as time moves on, in, in the beginning, I was really helping her with everything. And now, like one of the first rounds she shot under par in college golf, she had a four-footer on the last hole. And I walked on the green to help her, you know, because I coach at the college with her. So I'm, I'm walking on the green. I'm getting ready, ready to read it. And she goes, I'm good. You're good. Go ahead. Just get the heck out of here. And she put it herself. It's perfect. That's exactly right. what should happen. So it just reminds me of something. It's an, it's a really interesting point. It makes total sense. But it, it also reminds me too of because you know I'm in this like being in the media and in the golf media that like you sort of are on the front lines of all the stuff that people are saying. And one thing I always find really really interesting. Um, so I want to ask you guys about. It's sort of related to this too. It's that the idea of a pro changing their swing in any way, shape, or form, it's like a horrible idea. Like, to so many golf fans, you know? They, like, there's just this instinctive, like, why would you change it? It's working. Why would you change it? It's working. And then if it doesn't work, the only correct change is going back to whatever you did before, undoing some change. I use the analogy, speaking to you guys, that, you know, you could have a great car, but if you don't, change the oil on that car, that car will eventually just explode. Right? Um, I kind of reckon the golf swing seems like it works the same way. But I'm curious, like, I would love to hear what do you guys, you know, do people ask you about that? And if so, and if like, you know, this is just coming via me, like when somebody says, why would anybody try changing their swing? It's so stupid. Like, you know, just what do you, could you perhaps give some insight into that? Like, are they constantly working on their swing or like, you know, why would any pro decide to change something that's gotten them to the PGA tour period? I mean, that's a million dollar question, right? I mean, I think that, but I think it's different for players at different levels. And I think they make changes because they feel like there's some miss that's in their bag that they have to get rid of, eliminate or minimize to be able to compete at that level and to win or to improve, right? Whether it's, you got your card, but you can't keep it, or you've kept your card, but you're not going anywhere and you can't win, 
or you've won, but you hadn't won in a while or whatever, there's all different levels. But I think that, uh, I think that each player makes a change or, or goes to somebody different when they feel like there's a miss in there that they don't understand that hasn't been explained and they don't seem to be able to get rid of. And that to me is kind of the short version of why tour players make changes. I would agree with you, Tony. And I think like sometimes they make bad decisions, Luke, like, you know, I had a guy who was the, I don't want to say his name, but he was the number one overall driver in the world for two years hitting a fade. And he was hell bent on hitting a draw. And I'm like, why are you, why, why would you do that? You're already the best driver statistically on earth. Why would you choose to change the shape of the shot? You know, I want to draw. And I told him, well, I'm not going to help you draw it. You know, so he went and worked with somebody else who tried to help him draw it. And then he lost his card. And then he came back to me and we're in that pickle, right? Like, how do I get him back to where he was? It's a tough way. It's tough to find your way back sometimes. And then your body also could change right over time. You get a kid who's 22, 23 comes on tour. He's a completely different human being in five or six years on tour. And then maybe that needs to change. And I think that's why with like Bryson, what he's done, I'm blown away. Yeah, I'm blown away at what he's done. And it's not just the physical change, but to change the time it takes to go from setup to impact like he has done, it is remarkable to me. I mean, that that blows me away that he is now timing-wise from setup to impact. He's at impact on his new swing before the backswing finished on his old swing. I just think that's remarkable. It's a lot of courage the guy has. I, I give him credit. That's It's amazing. And it's interesting because like Bryson is one of the reasons why I ask because I have like almost yet to hear, or you know, like it's an unscientific thing. But when I look at the way golf fans react to certain swing changes, I just like can't really think of one that people are like, yeah, good change. Good, you know, I'm happy they made it. Like type people who people still think Tiger shouldn't have changed in 2000, you know, should have stuck with what he ever he had in 97 and then like, you know, five and, Bryson, I have is like the first one where I'm starting to see what I haven't really said. Well, I'm the majority opinion out there doesn't seem to be, oh, he's just really screwed over his career. Maybe you know it's still obviously very early, but it just kind of speaks, I think, to this. It's this funny, like you know, it's this. It's this. I think it's probably this funny thing where golfers, you know, think about their own game, think about the prospect of changing their own thing, swing. They get so worried about that that then they like project that onto tour players. Like, well, no, 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 you should not be changing anything. Right. Go play. And it's like, it doesn't really work like that. Yeah. I think one of the biggest decisions tour players make is who they go see if they change, right? Or they need help. And I think that's a critical decision in a player's career. Because I think that if you go from, you know, you can go to extremes and you can get lost really soon really quickly you know and there's tons of players out there that change but i i would say that i i mean i and i there's very few players that have dramatically improved by just dropping a coach that they've had for a long time and changing to somebody else i mean i can't i mean obviously tiger won a bunch of majors and had success but he's also tiger right i mean but i mean after you take him out and like so you look at what bryson's doing bryson's still working with his same coach, but he's obviously got Chris Como, who's a consultant and very involved in it, like hasn't just changed total philosophies of, of what he's done. I mean, it would be interesting to see, obviously Justin Rose made some big changes a long time ago when he went to Foley and they obviously paid off. But like, I mean, I don't know, you know, I mean, that would be a good article, Luke. It's like, 
how many major swing changes and big coaching changes of big players done they've actually worked out. Yeah, it's funny because I've almost wondered if you could do like a series about just swing change, you know, mm -hmm. like almost like you do a series of little profiles and, you know, <laughs> are there any, first of all, like are there any that stick out in your mind? And I mean, over the years, right? Like somebody who, if Faldo is like the classic example right. of somebody who like had a swing, went away, kind of disappeared for a bit, changed it, came back better, you know? And like, the idea is like, what are some a series of interesting little profiles that we can do on people who made changes better for worse or for the same, you know? I mean, look at Phil. If you put Phil's swing up with every coach along the way, you'd have a hard time, I think, seeing a bunch different in any of them, would you? Yeah. Got a little shorter for a bit, right? Got a little yeah. wider on the butch, and then it kind of went back. And yeah, it's interesting. You could say Kucher made a pretty big move through where he came in the beginning to where he ended up. And that was and an extraordinarily unique change. Mm -hmm. Like that took some courage to go away from any standardized norm of what a, a golf swing, a back swing is supposed to be and found the absolute right recipe for the guy. So that's an example of somebody who made a, a really profound change and got a lot better. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. So do you kind of have two choices? Either one, you go forward and try something new, or two, you go back to something that worked in the past? Are those kind of the, the two paths you look at? It depends on the player you're with. Like, so I'll just use two of them examples, like two guys I work with or what, they're 40 and 36, Lucas and Bill Haas, both had a lot of success, right? So I felt like for them, my job was to get back to what they did when they were successful. I think that's a totally different job than if a young guy came to see me or Brady and he hadn't won on tour and he hadn't been successful and he had a miss in there, like, that he couldn't understand or couldn't explain. I think those are two totally different teaching jobs than, I mean, and Brady will agree with this, like teaching Lucas Glover is probably one of the easiest teaching gigs in the world, right? I mean, you just got to make them hook, you know? So, you know, so we've, but as we've gone along, we've tried to get it to hook, but tighten up the draw. You know, my first job was just to get it shaped the way you want. And then over time, get it to tighten up. And, and with Bill, it's getting it to look and feel more like, it did when he played his really good golf and yet working around some of the stuff, like obviously he had an injury in that car wreck. So you, you know, you're trying to get information and figure out the best way to get him to do it. But like, that's different than if Brady and I are on the tee out at his place and he's got his hoodie on and somebody comes on that's on the, you know, that's on the corn ferry tour has a ton of speed, hits it a mile, but hadn't figured out how to get to the PGA tour. Like that's, those are two totally opposite coaching jobs. And I also think it's difficult to do both of those. I don't know that everybody can. Do. I, I would add to that too, that I think people have a misconception about a really good player who wants to maybe get better. Or like Tony said, it's really comes down to whatever shot it was that they don't want to hit. You know, they want a certain shot shape. They're looking for a way to play the game. And so we're as coaches, like, well, maybe the old was a better way for you to go back to that shot shape because we know that you understood that pattern and that motion. Where I think people think that pe that students come because they want it to look different. And that couldn't be anything further from the truth when you're working with somebody who's playing for a living. Mm -hmm. That is the least important priority. It's all about performance and how it works under pressure and the shot they're trying to hit. They, they could care less what it looks like. I mean, 
if you watch Webb Simpson, right, swing the golf club, I mean, most of the time, if you're not, you know, throwing up in your mouth a little, something's wrong with you because it's, it's hard to watch like that, you know, it's a huge save, but dude is freaking really good and hits it really good under pressure, you know, but I sure as heck wouldn't want to like try and teach somebody that. But the ball flight is fantastic, and he's he's great under the gun. It's all about how cool is it that he's how cool is it that he's not let anybody change that? Because you know, being a player at that level, at some point he struggled because he had years after the U.S. Open to where he is now, where he didn't play great, right? You know, somebody in there is like, oh, we got to square up that club face and get you. I mean, but he but he did. Kudos to him for not listening to us. Uh, this reminds me of something too. Sorry, I'm peppering you guys with questions, but I'm mean, just a couple of top 100, some brilliant minds here. So I, excuse me, but I tweeted this the other day, but do you think amateur golfers or recreational golfers like Cordy and I care more about how things look than pro golfers? And if so, why? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that with all of the stuff on the internet now, I think the average guy, and I don't, not going to use the word average golfer, but recreational golfer, a golfer that's struggling. I think that they look at lots of videos, lots of stuff from you on social media, and they see what things are supposed to look like or what we tell them they're supposed to look like. And I think that they, I think they do care more. I mean, I get a lot of people that come in and the golf balls, I mean, what they're hitting is fine, but when you put them and they can see their numbers, they're like, well, isn't that supposed to be, isn't that too into out or isn't the, you know, this, that, or the other. Or isn't that a degree too steep, you know, because I've read that like the tour average is five degrees down and it's like, you know, all of that stuff. So I just, I just read in golf magazine that I'm supposed, <laughs> you must love exactly. that. Exactly. Probably in one of our <laughs> tips, right. That we put together. But uh, so I do think that I agree with you. I mean, Brady, I'd like your opinion on that, but I think that more like, whereas like to me, not all of the tour players, but a huge portion of them, if it's going, if it's the shape they want and it's real solid and it goes where they're aiming, that's really all they care about because that's how they make their living. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I actually do give lessons and this is shocking because 18, well, 23 year old Brady would never have done this where I actually teach somebody and I'm like, it's good enough. Honestly, you know, you just can't score. You know, we got to figure out why you can't score. And well, it doesn't, my elbow's a little, I'm like, I honestly, it's good enough. You know, you hit it. Your seven iron goes 165 yards. DJ Tour Arch is 173. You're 47 years old and you, you know, you have worse flexibility with the knee, which is hard to imagine. You know, you have a pretty consistent ball flight. It's good enough. You're shooting 88 because of some other reason than your left elbow is not, you know, straight or some ridiculous. Exactly. You know, I think people just, and this is something I know Tony and I, we like to do these camps because we get to hang out and talk about people performing better, you know, and playing better rather than looking better. But I think you're right. I think people get, they're looking for love in all the wrong places. You know, it's just, it, it comes down to like, if you want to score, man, it's about scoring. And if, if you've got a good enough contact on the face, you hit a decent distance, your bad shot's not that bad. Your scoring problems have nothing to do with how it looks. You just can't play. I love those sessions sitting around with you talking about stuff but uh yeah i mean i i don't know i just think that uh teaching pros and amateurs is different right i think i try to give a lot of the same information but uh i think in some ways the the amateur golfers are less realistic than the tour players which shocks me to say that but but it's true i think sometimes tour players 
have a better understanding how much work it takes to get stuff changed or to be good, right? And I also think one thing that I think that the majority of tour players have a better understanding of is how important it is set up stuff. Like I think where that you aim is important and, and a consistency and a baseline of knowing that. I don't, to me, it's harder to get average players or I mean, or club level players, recreational players to understand the value. I agree. You actually, the grip may be important. Grip yeah, might be important. Yeah. It is funny you mentioned that because, um, you know, like so many tips that like teachers will give us would be set up oriented as they should be because a good teacher knows that's where things start where um but then you know the person on the other end of often to your point about sometimes they're less realistic than a tall player that's not always what they're looking for oh you know weaken up your grip a touch or your stance is a touch close they're almost not looking for something (laughs) that simple in uh, some it's almost like it takes an extra layer of convincing them it seems and Cordy I'm curious if you get any of this too it's like you almost need to convince them how important the setup and the grip and things are in a way that you don't necessarily have to when you say like oh your takeaway is a bit whatever so yeah it's, it's always interesting I think the thing you got to be able to do as a teacher to help a recreational player is in a short period of time you got to be able to change the ball flight to change the shape or the solidness or whatever to what they're looking for to get them to buy in. I mean, I think if a guy's a slicer and he doesn't hit, you know, and he swipes it, cuts card, and you can get him to hit a draw, a ball that curves right to left, whether it's through his grip, ball position, setup, hat, whatever it is, then I think they buy into what you tell them, you know. But if you change setup and you change things, and to you it looks on the camera like it's getting better, but the ball's still cutting or slicing, I think you lose – even if realistically it may be better for them, I think you've got to be as a, as a good teacher when we're talking about recreational players to be able to jump in and change the shape of the ball to fit what the player wants in a relatively short period of time. Do you disagree with that, Brady? No, not at all. I mean, people, people want to – like if they're a chronic slicer, not that we've ever taught one of those, but if, if they yeah. are, who they are, they want to see it not do that, you know? And, and it really does become important for us to change it quickly. You know, I, I find then the next thing is like, it's okay to be on the other end of the spectrum and hit some serious right to left shots along the way. That's very positive, you know, cause it's different. It doesn't mean they're going to score better. And that's the conversation, you know, as a teacher, I want to have with them. Like we're changing the ball fight. It may not be a better performance right away, but we got to change the shape. Right. And then it comes down to down the road. Like I can't tell you how many times this happens where I'll have somebody on a range and they're hitting, you know, 150 yard shot. And they'll hit it six or seven steps offline, you know, and then they're all pissy about it. And it's like, you just want to say, you are aware that that's like inside the PGA Tour app, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you do know this. And then you ask the question, what's PGA Tour average from 100 yards? And it's always oh, eight feet, 10 feet. Like, no, it's 18 and a half feet. You know, so maybe you shouldn't be so hard on yourself because, you know, you're not actually as bad as you think. And then you, you know, they have no ability to like talk to themselves in a positive way when they play. And so all of that has nothing to do with the technical change. It has to do with the performance aspect, but it's not sexy. That stuff's not sexy. It's not sexy, you know, to, to talk about not being crappy to yourself on the golf course. And, and but it really health challenges, like some of the stuff that probably could help people probably isn't very sexy for an article or what, you know what I mean? Like things, some people, but it goes back to like, what are people looking for? Like, I mean, do they want it to look perfect or they just want the ball to go 
better and do they want to hit it straighter or do they want to sh- shoot lower scores? You know, uh, like a lot of, I don't know that, but that's not y'all's fault. I don't think, because I think a lot of people want sexy, crazy new information that's going to dramatically change their game after they read one of your social media posts. I got a huge article idea. Let's hear it. Tony and I on the beach, Speedos, non-sexy things that work. Look at Cordy. <laughs> Cordy loves it. Yeah. yeah I'm going to be honest. I don't think I would even do that. <laughs> I love it. No, it, it is my big thing. I know from and Cordy, I'll be curious to hear what you think too from Golf Science Lab's perspective, which I really admire in terms of your approach to things. But what I want the golf magazine and golf.com reader to understand ultimately is that all sorts of stuff works in golf, you know, or like look at Webb Simpson compared to like everything works. It just doesn't all work at the same time. You know, it's all, it's all predicated on other stuff. So like the takeaway tip that we'll have whenever is a good tip. It works. Right. It's it, it it will help people with but I want the reader to know that it will help certain people with that specific problem. And it's also sort of dependent on some other stuff. It's it's a really hard thing to communicate um because it requires like the reader and the user being kind of self-diagnosing a little bit, which is hard because golf swing's really complicated and golf's really, you know, nuanced, but that ultimately is like the North Star that I'm always trying to point out with our stuff. That the person picks up, uh, you know, picks up a magazine or logs onto golf.com and sees one of our videos and understands that, you know, the caveat here is that if you hook the ball, you should probably not be trying to like get more there or something. You know, like it just, that's all I want them to know that it's, it's, there's, there's lots of factors here. I always say to students that like, you know, cause they'll ask all the time about stuff they've read on golf.com or whatever. And it's like, I always say, it's like going to a drugstore. If you took everything in the drugstore, I mean, you'd get sick, probably throw up, whatever, have to go to the hospital. But if you went in there and you grabbed the right thing off the shelf for what your game needed or what you were sick, what your symptoms were, you'd get better. You know, I think, and I think shopping for golf instruction is the same thing. You know, if you go and you try everything that you guys put out, you're probably going to suck worse. Right. But if you know that, Hey, this is what my problem is. And you, you know, you research it and you find two or three articles or approaches on what you need. Absolutely. You're going to get help. for. Yeah. And it's something we've, we've, we've been tinkering around with trying to color code things, you know, like if you slice, if you hurt, just little, little things to try to help with that. But ultimately that is a really good analogy, Tony, because it is just, it's, it's like very much related to you. Like people should not be logging on to golf.com and doing literally everything we push out. Please don't do that. Um, uh, please like scroll, uh, you know. Go that sounds like a good video to do. I think I'm going <laughs> to try every, every article on golf.com from like for a three month period. We'll see what happens. You should. It'd be like supersize me, but for golf, I love it. <laughs> kind of what happened to Peter Kessler's game all those years hosting Golf Academy Live, all those lessons trying it went from like super single digit scratch to couldn't break 80, 85, right? I mean, so too much information can be 
obviously can be bad. That's, that's kind of like a journey. I'm, that journey I want to take sounds like where I'm headed. That's, that's great. Good. <laughs> I'll be the guy that ruined like, Cordy. Then I'll be the guy known as the guy that ruined Cordy. Hey, we got to ruin somebody, Tony. Yeah, trust me, there's plenty. <laughs> I was going to say, like, you know, the thing we're talking about, things that are working, the best teachers fix the biggest stuff in the least amount of time with the least amount of effort mm-hmm. for them and the student. And that's when you really are watching something that's really, really good. You know, it's like you, you want stuff that has teeth and works. Right. It's like Capone got pinched for tax evasion, right? Like it wasn't sexy, but it was effective. And the same thing is true with really good teachers. They pick the right thing. Like if you have somebody slicing it, at least for me, and the grip's too weak and the shoulders are left at the dress and their toe lines to the right, I would bet a lot of money. I'm going to have a really, I'm going to, I'm going to look good in about five minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to strengthen the grip. I'm going to get their shoulders to the right of the toe line. I'm going to teach them a little bit about the hips turn and I'm going to get it drawing really fast. It's not going to be that hard. Yeah. In the past, I, when I was starting, I might have been, you know, trying to sustain the line of compression and having the left wrist flat through impact and all this crap. And I would have probably made them worse, you know, but as you get better over time, I think you just get better at helping people faster. And that's, that's what I'm constantly trying to do. And that's why I like watching Tony with Lucas and other players he has because you watch it and it's not like you think you're ready for some magic, you know. When somebody's working with a tour, I'm out of it. Yeah, you're gonna think it's gonna be well. This is gonna be special, and it's really not special. It's just back to the basic crap again that he needs to do to play well, like you guys were saying. That's what makes we, it. That's what makes you it know, I'll tell you a good story. You, we went to Greenville, I don't know, a month ago. I don't know, five weeks ago to work with Bill, right? And so we drive up there, drive up to Greenville, go to his lake house, and work in there. And I mean, whole day, all we did was get him taller to dress and his feet wider. It was the whole lesson for a whole day. And he played nine holes, right? And, you know, he hit it a ton better, right? But, like, sometimes, I mean, but, like, for lots of players, that's not enough info, right? Or that they don't think that that would be enough for them. I think that's more, going back to what you said, Luke, that's more of the recreational player that would go, nah, I need something more than that. Whereas if you tell a tour player, but you just need to get taller, get your feet wider, they'd understand, well, hell, I'm already pretty good. Maybe the ball's in the wrong spot or I got to get taller and it makes a big difference. But, uh, but, you know, I think that, uh, I mean, Brady, we've been around each other long. I mean, I always start with how they're set up and where the mm-hmm. ball is and where they're aimed and, and then can go to the club face. And I mean, after that, I'm, you know, normally out of shit to do. So, Well, Brady, you came up with the title for this conversation. I'm still working on it, so this might not be the final iteration, but golfers looking for love in all the wrong places. Nice. That was that was kind of your quote. So I think we we pull that as our as our rough working title. Luke, what do you think? Is that gonna is that gonna pop or I love it? It sounds like a cover line for us in the future issue. <laughs> Stop looking for love in the wrong place. <laughs> We've done it plenty. I would definitely be, that would be Tony and I on the beach in a Speedo. That would be a wrong place to look for love for sure. <laughs> wants this beach trip with a Speedo so bad. <laughs> really well, I've, I've never heard a, a better way to end a podcast than that. Exactly. Uh, guys, this was, this was thank, fun. Luke, well, thanks for taking time. Brady, as always, thanks for sharing and taking time. This was good. We need to do it again. Indeed. Thanks, Cordy, guys. You're the best. Make me look good always. See you guys. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Tour Coach with Tony Ruggiero. If you enjoyed this, make sure to hit subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can stay up to date because we have weekly episodes coming your way with fascinating people in the world of golf instruction at the highest level. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. If you want to learn more about Tony, head over to dosweepersgolf.com to get all the details on what he's up to. Maybe you want to see him, grab a lesson, or go to one of his camps, pick up his book, Lessons from the Legends. You can do that there. If you want to see Tony in action with some videos and other content, head over to golfsciencelab.com slash Tony to get more info there. This episode was powered by the Golf Science Lab and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions. There's one thing if you know about me, if you've listened to the Dew Sweepers, you've come to listen to me talk, is you know I'm big on loyalty. We give 100% here at the Dew Sweepers. We put a lot of emotional investment into everything we do with every one of our players. And the same can be said for our partners and the folks that have been with us for the long haul and help the Dew Sweepers, help our juniors, help us get to our tour players. And so I want to give a special thanks to our sponsors. Our sponsors are, first and foremost, Buick and our local Buick dealers here around the Southeast, Shrixon Cleveland Golf, who've been with me for over a dozen years, and their belief and support of what we do here with the Dew Sweepers. And lastly, the folks at Vineyard Vines. The folks at Vineyard Vines love what we do with junior golf. They support us on the road. There isn't a better family or group of people that are going to help us look our best, play our best, and have more fun than the folks at Vineyard Vines. So special thanks to our sponsors, Please support those as you get the opportunity. And for more information about any of those, check us out at dosweepersgolf.com or you can always check me out on Instagram at the Dewsweeper.